Welcome to the Beyond COVID podcast at Harvard Center for International Development, or CID as we call it. This is our series of conversations with faculty experts on various dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID research initiative is to use lessons learned and capitalize on innovations sparked by the pandemic to address losses and reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Carrie Ann DiBattista, and I am a graduate student at Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a CID student ambassador. This week, we are joined by Dr. Walter Willett, Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm sitting down with Walter on March 3rd, 2022, to discuss the interaction between nutrition, climate change, and COVID-19. Walter, thank you for joining us today. Just to start off, could you tell me how you've seen nutrition and epidemiology intersect throughout your career? Well, I started off with a background in food science and uh, growing up in the Midwest, our family were dairy farmers from way back. So I've been quite engaged in the food world for a long time. But then I went into medical school and got more interested in epidemiology, spent some time in East Africa, the faculty of medicine in Dar es Salaam, and really saw the power of epidemiology. So I came back to the doctoral degree in that, and then realized while doing that, that it, we could use epidemiologic approaches to understand much better how our diets affect our long-term health. Based on your research and kind of where you are today with through your career, how would you describe the current state of our population's nutritional status and how is it affecting medical outcomes? Unfortunately, I would have to give our nutritional status probably a C minus at best. In fact, we've scored the diets from 195 countries around the world according to what we call the Alternative Healthy Eating Index, which goes from zero to 100. Uh, we're in the United States at about 50, 55. Other, the best countries in the world are at about 65. That includes some of the Mediterranean countries, Japan, Southeast Asia, and a few countries in West Africa and South America. So we have a long way to go to have what would be an optimally healthy diet. You could look at that as a, a good thing. We could, do, we could make some huge improvements in well-being and healthier lives by changing our diets. Unfortunately, we've not been going in a good direction. And it's not like we've made uh, lots of improvements over the last couple of decades. In fact, overall, our uh, diet quality has only gone up a little bit. The main reason is that we have eliminated trans fat and we've had some reduction in sugar-sweetened beverages, but overall our diets are still poor quality. And with huge disparities, we do see that across income, uh, income levels, across demographic, other demographic groups, there are huge differences that contribute directly to shortened lives and suffering. Again, there's huge room for improvement. One of the obvious and most conspicuous aspects of our poor diet and metabolic quality is the epidemic of obesity. When I was starting off in my education, the prevalence of obesity in U.S. adults was about 10%. Now it's 42%, and it's not slowed down at all. It's just been an almost linear increase with a few little bumps over time. And we're just now really starting to see the health consequences of that epidemic as the generation that became overweight and obese during childhood is now moving into the years when chronic disease uh, is, is happening. 
we've seen in the middle-aged Americans now, coronary heart disease rates, the number one cause of death, had been coming down for decades. It's now on its way back up. Obesity-related cancers like colorectal cancer had been coming down for decades, now going up. And we've also seen in the last four years before the pandemic, life expectancy was going down. We're now living about five or six years shorter than uh, Japanese, for example. So there's huge consequences. And from what we've seen, uh, little bits of data coming in from the pandemic years, diet quality and overall metabolic health is going in the worst direction. How do individual dietary factors affect risk and severity of COVID-19? Clearly, there's an important role of diet and metabolic health in COVID-19. We're just starting to have decent information. It takes some time. One of the reasons it's taking longer in the United States is we don't have a national health service where we can identify deaths in real time. We have about a two to three year lag, actually, in being able to connect that with our dietary data. But uh, studies we've done and others have done in the UK and a few other places do show that the overall dietary pattern that we've called a Mediterranean type dietary pattern or more plant forward diet is related to lower risk of severe COVID-19. Exactly which components are important, we're not sure yet, but it does seem that a more plant-based diet, not necessarily being a vegan diet, but more in the direction of more plant-based diet is advantageous. There's also quite a bit of evidence now that low vitamin D levels may lead to higher risk of severe COVID-19. That's not directly a function of diet because we get most of our vitamin D from sunlight and activation of vitamin D in the skin. And we, a large percentage of Americans have suboptimal levels of vitamin D, especially people with darker skin because it just simply uh, melanin blocks the the activation of vitamin D by sunlight. And so rates of severe vitamin D deficiency are 17 times higher in African-Americans compared to European-Americans. And there's a simple fix, just with a safe and inexpensive supplement. On the topic of plant-forward diets, how does climate change relate to nutrition? Clearly, climate change is probably the biggest challenge facing human civilizations today, because if we don't get that right, nothing else is going to be right. And what we eat does have a major impact on climate change. It's not the biggest impact. Clearly, first and foremost, we do need to get ourselves off of fossil fuels. But still, if we continue on the current dietary path that the world is on, which is high amounts of red meat and other animal source proteins in already affluent countries, but increasing amounts in what have been low and middle income countries, and then adding two to three more billion people to feed on a global basis. This is representing a huge challenge. And even if we get off fossil fuels, we still won't be able to avoid severe increases in greenhouse gas emissions. So our food choices do play an important role. The biggest contributors are first of all beef, but then other animal source proteins, pork to a lesser extent, poultry, dairy, all have 30 to 40 times the amount of greenhouse gas emissions per serving compared to plant protein sources like nuts and legumes. How has the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated some of these negative environmental impacts of our current diet? We don't really have good data on the environmental impacts of diet during the COVID pandemic. I expect that probably the environmental impacts didn't change too much during this period of time. 
to the extent that people may have shifted toward less expensive, more processed carbohydrates, basically refined starch and sugar for economic reasons, uh, that will have a major health impact. The environmental impact won't be too much. So in terms of health outcomes, as well as environmental outcomes, what are some of the best dietary changes that individuals can make? I know you mentioned plant-forward diet. Right. We've looked at those kind of swaps, and I think that's an important principle to keep in mind if we're going to in nutrition, if we're going to increase something, we need to reduce something and vice versa. And the biggest, uh, the best swap in terms of both health and environment is switching from red meat to nuts. And that's really important because there, that's a, a pretty easy swap. And we can do that in many ways and create interesting, healthy foods, dishes, meals that are attractive, enjoyable. Uh, to a large extent, we can build on experiences of other cultures that have used animal, used uh, plant protein sources as the primary protein sources in their diet. Uh, some of the Mediterranean countries, for example, uh, Southeast, A- Southeast Asian countries, African countries. Just for example, a, a great West African dish is a peanut stew that has lots of vegetables in it and peanuts, which are a wonderful protein source, flavored, actually wonderful meal, almost by itself, add a few greens and you really have a, a complete meal. Those are great suggestions for individuals. If we're looking at long-term resilience of our food supply, as well as our own life expectancy, how should the world rethink health and nutrition in the wake of the pandemic? I think we don't need to take a different course than we should have been taking already but the pandemic really did further expose our vulnerabilities because we were in poor metabolic shape as a, as a population. And it just like being better prepared with a screening test, with being able to ramp up immunizations, uh, which would help dampen the, uh, the next pandemic, which will come almost for sure. Being in better, better molecule, being in better metabolic shape would be strongly advantageous going into a pandemic, but we should have been on that path already. And again, this further exposed the huge disparities that people with good incomes, with education, actually are doing pretty well. But people on the lower end of the scale are doing worse and suffered much worse during the pandemic. For example, African Americans lost on average about five years of life expectancy from the pandemic. Hispanic Americans lost about five years of life expectancy during the pandemic, African-Americans about three years and European-Americans about one year. So huge disparities. And some of these are magnifying great disparities that already existed. So we do have to keep an eye. Overall, we need to improve, but we really need to make sure that everybody has access to a healthy diet and can afford a healthy diet. How can policy around the food that we eat help push us in the right direction? Policy changes can help us move in in the right direction in many ways. For example, uh, just the simple power of purchasing or the governments at the national, state, local level and institutions purchase lots of foods and they can make sure that they're uh, choosing healthier choices. Again, emphasizing plant protein sources plus fruits, vegetables, uh, that can make a huge difference. The situation we're in where those the unhealthy foods, uh, basically refined starch and sugars, which occupy about 40% of the calories in our country, they're very, very cheap. So there's huge incentives to use those ingredients for manufactured foods 
where the profit margin can be, can be huge. And we allow those foods to be heavily marketed to children where they really can't be expected to make choices based on the long-term health consequences and the environmental issues as well. So we need to change our economic incentives, which can be done. We use subsidies, direct and indirect subsidies for lots of things, usually emphasizing the less healthy options. We could use those for healthy options. And we also have to put some constraints on marketing to children. Really, that's taking advantage of vulnerable populations. And they are going to be living shorter and suffering in the meantime because of this heavy marketing that is getting increasingly effective every year because the marketing world does lots of research on how to penetrate our vulnerabilities. It sounds like it's very similar to the issues that of cigarette companies and vaping companies also marketing towards youth. And, you know, food and sugar has been shown to be almost as addictive, if not as much. So, Yeah, absolutely. The food world is taking the playbook written by the tobacco industry and marketing, especially to vulnerable populations, is clearly part of the part of the playbook. And the consequences are extremely serious. The fact that we allow this to go on with very minimal regulation control is is very troublesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking to us again today, Walter, for sharing your insights on the research that you've done related to nutrition as well as COVID-19 and negative health outcomes. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back soon.